Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Unsettling Knowledge podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gillette, coming to you from Utrecht University, where I work in the history department. Today, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Francio Guadeloupe and Makeda Ferguson. And together, we'll be discussing Francio's book, Black Man in the Netherlands. So, without further ado, I'm going to ask first Francio and then Makeda to introduce themselves. Over to you, Francio. Perfect. Since this is taking place in many time zones, I'm going to say good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to uh, people who are listening in. I'll start actually with where I began my life in the West Indies, the Dutch West Indies to be precise. When you look at my family, we were Spanish, French, English and Dutch and a bit of a Canadian. So we were part of all those different um, people coming from different places who met each other. And then I am the product of that to a certain extent. Currently, I work at the University of Amsterdam in the anthropology department. And I work as a senior researcher for one of the institutes of the Royal Dutch Academy of Sciences, which is called the Royal Institute for Southeast Asian and Caribbean Studies in English. In Dutch, it's called Het Koninklijk Instituut voor Taal, Land en Volkenkunde. When Hurricane Irma hit, that I was president of the University of St. Martin in the Dutch West Indies. Yes. That's uh, enough. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, hello to everyone. My name is Makeda Ferguson. I am originally from Trinidad and Tobago, which is part of the English-speaking Caribbean, and actually I think pretty close to most of the Dutch Caribbean islands as well. I currently study at the Utrecht University, where I do my master's in sustainable business and innovation, and I actually also did my bachelor's study at the University College Utrecht, where I uh, majored in environmental science and linguistics. Um, and I am also currently the president of the African and Caribbean Heritage Network. And if you want to follow us and see more of what we're doing at Utrecht University and Utrecht in the whole, please follow us at ACHN underscore NL. Fantastic. I'm really excited to talk about your book today, Francio. And I want to give listeners a little bit of a flavor of the feel of the book, the tone of the book. And I will do that by quoting one of your reviewers, Dustin Abdali, if you give Francio Guadeloupe two options, he will likely pick the third one. The book, rather than speaking about black man in the Netherlands, invites the reader to rethink what is the category black. You open the book with a poem and an homage to thinkers that inspire you, and you say that this book could have been a blues song or a spiritual if you came from a particular life experience in America. But you end the beginning with this declaration. Because I cultivate the virtue of ungrounded hope, this essay can only be what it is, a sweet and sour urban tune, heralding an anti-racist future. So in some ways, this book is a journey to explain your sweet and sour hope. Can you tell us more about the journey to the book? Why it's not a spiritual nor a blues is because I was trying to create space within a narrative that is influenced a lot by what comes from North America and North American academia, which I connect to the blues and the spiritual. I came anthropologically when the writing culture turn was taking place. That said, we must ask ourselves how we write, how we represent, and try to find a way in which we do not enact 
the colonial legacy. That was the writing culture turn of the 1990s, writing culture with James Clifford. There was women writing culture with Ruth Behar, um, The Bridge Called My Back, a whole lot of books at that time. So that's when I came of age. I was at that time also reading Fanon and Herit Heiser and all these others. And I realized that for them to write the experience of people who descended from the people who survived transatlantic slavery, they found a way of writing in which they were mixing different genres. When you read Franz Fanon, you read some poetic parts, you see prose happening. When you read Derek Walker, his prose is poetic. When you look at Edouard Glissant, you see that is happening. So I um, have always thought that if I do anthropology and write anthropology and ethnography is the writing of an ethnos, that's really what it means, then I must find a way of constantly unsettling uh, readers in their habitual habits of narrative. So therefore you'll have poems in the book, you have a letter that I sent, you'll have some parts that are extremely theoretical and some parts that are very empirical, some parts that are reflective, some parts that dabble a bit with uh, spirituality and so forth. And to have many voices included and therefore I quote lots of musicians. There is a Trinidadian singer, David Rudder, and David Rudder said, Soka is not the blues. Soka is the comic in the Caribbean. So it is a, a different twist upon the life that was happening. And I think Trinidad and Aruba, where I began, and Curacao, these were black gold societies, as, as I used to call them at the University of St. Martin. These were societies that were structured by industry, by oil, gas, bauxite. And that meant that you always had, when I was growing up and I came from them, what we would now call a brown-skinned middle class of people who were of African descent, who had the cars, who had the luxuries that the North Americans had in the time when you still had Jim Crow in the U.S., you had this reality. Now, I came out of that reality, so I couldn't act as though that was not the case. Whilst I had to recognize that we still had a big brother... <laughs> in the North called the United States that was constantly pushing a particular racial and capitalist logic. So therefore, it has to be sweet and sour because I cannot act as though I did not emerge from that middle class, not the people who were in abject poverty. That was not my reality. And coming to the Netherlands, I had to take into account that I got a scholarship. <laughs> I'd never been to the Netherlands, but given how the kingdom functioned, I could apply for a scholarship. And once I had the grades, it's not even the grades, once I got the diploma, I could come to the Netherlands and study. And every year you have about, what is it, six to seven hundred students from the Dutch Caribbean coming to the Netherlands, creating again and recreating that kind of middle class. And hopefully we can do it critically, but we need to recognize our positionalities. So therefore the book was, the poem was trying to open up to say, I need to recognize a different positionality and I need to write from that different positionality. I wondered how does this resonate with you, Makeda, or does it not? And I wondered that about the book as a whole, given your investment in the African and Caribbean Heritage Network 
and the fact that you came to the Netherlands and have experienced life here from Trinidad and Tobago? Um, actually, yes. When uh, Francie were talking about positionalities, for me, what was in the back of my mind whilst reading the book was that I was, as a newcomer myself, in a complete outsider of the Dutch kingdom. It was very interesting for me because I can relate to a lot of the Dutch Caribbean people that you were talking about in your book that you mentioned. Actually living here was very interesting to kind of merge those two realities. I also felt like there weren't that many differences throughout my own experience. I think for me, like the biggest thing is not speaking Dutch fluently, which is also something that even uh, Jedmar, who had the challenge of also learning Dutch, but he has more of a background. But I understand like where he's going. And I was thinking when he was trying to learn urban Dutch in addition to formal Dutch, and I was thinking to myself, oh, I don't think I can ever learn urban Dutch. I think that's not a point I can ever reach. I think I have to focus on that first Dutch and like that can be it for me. So I have to accept that I will never be like accepted into the urban Dutch of the youth or like my generation or things like that in the Netherlands. And this speaks to something that is in the book, I think, in the third section or so. We often forget that there is a world that was created by all these people that came to the Netherlands. The people who came from Morocco and Turkey and Suriname and the Moluccans and Indonesian Antilles and so forth. They constructed uh, Iran and so they constructed something together. What would happen is that, let's say, me coming to the Netherlands, I could go to the university and stick with the university crowd and I could also understand or integrate with that happening that was already taking place, that conviviality that was taking place. To integrate into that conviviality meant that I had to take into account that the Dutch that was spoken at the university was not the Dutch that would actually make me have a space or belong when I was in that convivial space. I had to learn a Dutch that included Surinamese words, including Antillian words, learn how to, how to intonate it, not a e but e e I had to learn that. And, and understand what it meant. I had to learn that there was another uh, sartorial style, another way of dressing that mattered if I wanted to go to the clubs, and I was 18, 19. Um, if I wore the clothes that I wore at the university and I went to the club, I could forget about it. <laughs> no one was interested. I had to learn that there was a style of dress a style of movement. And once I learned that, then I recognized, okay, these are two worlds that exist. And, 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 and the first part is a recognition of that world that, that emerged. Um, the world which you had in soccer clubs. Now, I was living in Helmond. Helmond Sport was not such a big club, but PSV was a big club. I had to learn that style. I had to learn the, 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 the music that was already taking place, I had to see that hip-hop that was emerging in the Netherlands at that time contained people who actually were born in New York, like um, 24K. Singers were born in the, in the U.S. and from the Caribbean, they went to the U.S. and from the U.S. they went to the Netherlands. So I'm realizing that that's taking place with DJX Records. Some of it is in English, some of it is in Dutch, and that new kind of Dutchness, which not at this moment in time in Rotterdam, I, there was a last study that showed that people who are 35 and up, when you look at the language that they're most comfortable in, it is that language that emerged in the convivial culture. They've learned to actually speak that as they speak the other, let's say, the more standard 
versions of Dutch. And of course, there's many kinds of Dutch because if you're living in the South, there's Limburgs and there's Brabants and you can't claim it's the same as the Dutch that is spoken in Utrecht and so forth. When I would come to Amsterdam, I was a teenager, I had the most difficulty to understand what the tram chauffeurs were saying. I spoke Dutch, but the Dutch that was spoken in Amsterdam was a Dutch I had difficulties understanding. When you're living in Brabant or Limburg, you really have to do your best to understand what the person on the, on the TV station, the, the national TV station, is saying. So then you realize the Netherlands is not one place, it's a multiplicity of places. And when I went to live in Amsterdam and work, I had to unlearn my Brabants uh, because people would hear me speaking Dutch and they would say, these words that you're using, what kind of Dutch is that? Allicht. I had to unlearn that to... To, to, to speak it differently. So wabblief is a term that I used to use. I hardly use wabblief anymore. I now say, what bedoel what say you, or something like that. But wabblief was the easiest way, and, and so forth. So that multiplicity of the Netherlands, the convivial, plus the other kinds of Dutch, these are many worlds that people had to negotiate and still negotiate, I think. Yes, um, from a linguistic perspective, it's very interesting because... Even though I don't speak Dutch, coming from a Caribbean place where I know that we have varieties, so we can speak a Trinidadian English and we can speak standard English as well, I can recognize that it's also an important part of the whole integration and assimilation concept that you bring into your book as well. And just in Dutch, it kind of excites me that there are these uh, new things. Like I had no idea that there were like that many languages contained in like urban Dutch, like the Arabic, um, yeah. also Papiamento. San Antongo, I was like, it sounds like a lot of work to learn. And I actually, I was very impressed and also was very intrigued in general by it. Yeah. If you speak the, the, the Dutch that's spoken in, in the convivial spaces, to speak that well, you have to speak standard Dutch very well. It's interesting that you can't just only learn that one. You have to learn both. Because it's, it's rules also. It, it has a grammar. It's not like it's just you do as you want. There's, there's grammatical rules. Yeah. involved there yeah you need yeah. another course to learn it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting you bring up the concepts of assimilation and integration Makeda because that does run through the book it brings up some of the larger conceptual terms that you turn into a question as as Dastan Abdali says you know so what is this black in the black man in the Netherlands the picture you just painted is one you paint throughout the book of the possibilities of conviviality, the importance of multiplicity, and you identify blackness as actually not a category that you're necessarily very interested in or one that you want to disrupt and interrupt and expand, perhaps. You also talk about global anti-black racism and anti-blackness. So you have these terms around racialization, around race, that remind me of the saying race is the child of racism that there is no such thing and yet the racism produces the races that then become grounds for these solidarities but also oppressions and in many ways I think you refuse some of these distinctions can you talk about that conceptual decision like what is the black in your book or do you just refuse I would say that blackness is a political economic, cultural, and social sets of operations that designate a group of people 
black. And when they designate that group of people black, what they are trying to do is place these people outside of the world of subjects. They're trying to make them objects. Amese said would call that thingification. They're trying to make them things. And the moment you try to do that is the moment you are busy saying, now I'm going to treat you as means towards ends, not as ends in yourself. That is how I understand the conception of blackness. And thus, uh, I had to do work reading people like Achille Mbembe, but also people like Robin Kelly and so forth, to say, okay, so how did this operation come into existence? And that meant that I had to say transatlantic slavery, when it was happening, there had to be a legitimation of actions. And racism is a set of actions and legitimation for that action. How do you transport 12 million people, let's use the, the general <laughs> statistics, 12 million people to another part of the globe and deny your common humanity? You have to say they are different. You make them black. They're not like us. They're infrahuman, lesser, and so forth, and sometimes not even human. Uh, polygenesis. <laughs> they <laughs> descend from a different, uh, a different line. We're not the same. So you make them black. But if you know a little bit about Caribbean and wider colonial histories, you will know that that operation also took place in how people treated the first comers in Australia, who are called the Aboriginals. They too were made black, made things. The people in Papua experienced that. The Amazigh experienced that. The Rohingya are experiencing it uh, today. And when you think about the Caribbean and the ways in which define and rule happened, then you recognize that people made these walls between people whose ancestors came from Africa, those who came from India, those who came from China and Java and so forth. But if you looked how people had to live, they had to live with each other. They had to borrow continuously. For instance, a derogatory term, the red legs, people who came from the Irish, in the Caribbean, they were treated as though they were black, blackened. There was a term in Ireland in the 1600s, it said to be Barbadoed. If you were Barbadoed, that meant you never came back from your indenture. You actually died there. The way the Irish were treated, and up to now, they are not in the group that people call white. <laughs> they are still poor in places like Montserrat, Barbados, and so forth. They look up to one of the person, one of the few that made it. And interestingly, this is Rihanna, because Rihanna partially descends from the red legs. And when the red legs think about it, they say, that's one of the persons that at least made it out of here. So if you're thinking Caribbean, you have to say, I'm looking at the blackened people, the people that were treated as things, and then I will recognize the operation of blackness and anti-black racism is the racism that people of African descent experience. Global anti-blackness is that larger operation that includes the aboriginals, the Papuans, and so forth. It's trying to speak about a wider solidarity amongst people because I think that is vital if we want to really understand what took place. If I go to Australia, I can try to fool myself and say, well, you know, what happened to people of, of African descent was the worst. But then when I speak to people <laughs> who are Aboriginal struggling, they'll look at me and say, 
What are you talking about? Do you know that our incarceration rates are higher than your incarceration rates? And then I have to say, indeed, because in the Caribbean, you can't speak about disproportionate incarceration rates. That is not something that makes lots of sense, but it makes sense in North America. So these specificities within the global is something I was trying to describe, looking at it locally in places like Helmont, where I was growing up, uh, but have in Rotterdam too, where when you look at these neighborhoods, there are people who either were born in places like Suriname, the Dutch Caribbean, Morocco, and so forth, or they are children from people who were born there. And in places like Rotterdam and Helmont, there is no such thing as a white flight, as it's called in Dutch, witte vlucht, that the pink-skinned people are able to move out when the others come in. These people are still struggling, so they don't move. They're there, you meet with them, sometimes there's good, sometimes it's less good, and a culture emerges there. That's why Rotterdam and places like Rotterdam Zuid is not exactly the same as a place like the Belmer in Amsterdam. But people forget these connotations. And when you look at the Belmer, it is an extremely pluricultural place as well. So it's trying to say, let's really look. Let's not just use these big rosters to, to claim we understand, but really look what is happening. So if you want to do something in Rotterdam, you have to think it differently than if you want to do it in Amsterdam. And Amsterdam is not the Netherlands only. <laughs> it's one of the places in the Netherlands. Something what you were saying just reminded me of within the book as well. Regarding political blackness, you talk about that there's a treatment of people. People are blackened and they're treated as such. But would you say, maybe regardless of place, that there's a difference in treatment of people who are blackened and people who are black? I think all people are blackened who are oppressed. Some of the people that are blackened who are oppressed, they then are labeled black people. That's the way I read it. And then... If you look at what political blackness was, and I understand that there are some people who want to malign the concept and say, but it's not really useful and so forth. But if you are thinking political blackness from the Caribbean, then you say, what is one of the first places where this thing emerged, like political blackness? It was in Haiti, in the Haitian Revolution. After the Haitian Revolution, the Haitian Constitution of 1805 said, everyone that's here that is fighting against oppression, we will call black. That meant the various people who descended from, pe from the various people from Africa. It meant those people from France who fought long. It meant the people from Poland. It meant the people from German descent. They all became black. So the Haitian constitution is not a constitution that says we have black people and brown people. and No, we have black people. That's why in Haitian Creole, the term neg means human. That's a resignification. That's a complete transposition to create something new. You then have to say neg mao to mean a brown skin human or neg blanc to mean a pink skin human. But in Haiti, nag, black, meant human. They recognized they needed to re-signify it completely. Another place where this happened was in Brazil, in Palmares. There, too, the poor that were experiencing Portuguese downpression went and lived in this state for a while that was created Palmares, and everyone there was one. That's why when people look at the maroon establishments in Brazil, they say, but these people call themselves maroon, but they look more Indian or they look more, they have European features. 
but it's because of that history. That Caribbean understanding of re-signifying, but I would say even transposing blackness, that then moved to Europe in the 50s, 60s. That's why when you look at the British Black Panther Party, the Black Panthers in Great Britain consisted of people of West Indian descent, people of West African descent, people of Bangladeshi descent, Pakistani descent. They were all black because when they looked around and they saw when they were trying to, to rent a room, it said no black, no Pakistani, no Irish, no dogs. So all these folks together are going to say, you know, if we are being blackened, then we'll be politically black. Someone like Stuart Hall's counterpart is Shivanandan, who came from Sri Lanka. He's experiencing the riots and he's seeing how he's being treated. So he says, I'm black man. I can't be bothered with this colonial define and rule. <laughs> I'm black. That's political blackness. So then would you say that um, political blackness is a means to achieve non-racialism? It's a means to fight. So you can do it in several ways. For instance, I think that if I look at what happened at the Erasmus University, it was called the ASA Association of Students of African Heritage. And that was in the, the early 2000s. That was a political blackness because they said people from sub-Saharan Africa, people from Egypt and Tunisia and, and Somalia and so forth, with the people who have an African link from the Caribbean or North America or Latin America, we are going to be one. That's a political blackness. These people were not one, but they made themselves one. You can broaden it the way how Hall and Shivanandan did it and said, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, we're all black. Sometimes they included the Irish as well. We're all black. But what they were doing is remembering Haiti, remembering Palmares, and remembering that you can't play the colonial game of different identities that was uh, pushed upon you. You need to play it differently. So one of the persons whose theories are still, and he's a friend of mine, a kind of mentor, Anton Alahar from Trinidad, he would say, there's no Alahar in India. When we came there, they probably heard my ancestors said Allah, and they said, your name is now Alahar. But he said, I grew up in Trinidad. I grew up with people of African descent. I grew up with all of these I have to think about when I think about myself. I can't play the European game of abstracting myself out of the Trinidadian reality. Yes, there's India. He said, but damn, I love Sparrow. <laughs> I can't act as though I didn't listen to Sparrow. So... It's from that particular discourse that I take political blackness. That's uh, enlightening to hear because the ACHN is only going on two years old now. It's only had one full year in existence. And when I was on the founding board, we would talk about uh, our vision. I would think, okay, I want whoever joins this association to reflect who like, I grew up with, which is everyone. And when we would have events and I would have some native Dutch people come in and say they feel like they don't belong, I tell them, well, if you ask me, everyone in this room could be from the Caribbean. There's no difference based on skin color. You could be Caribbean, so you shouldn't feel like you don't belong because you do belong. And now I'm thinking maybe I was practicing political blackness all along. Exactly. As long as, yeah. and as because it's a political thing, that's what's called political blackness. It's a political identity based upon refusing racism, economic oppression, gender, and so that's what it's about. Then we are politically black with one another. That doesn't mean we forget that maybe I'm a Ruben or so. That's all fine. But politically, we have to become something else to fight what is being done to us.
You make a really compelling case, and I know you're teasing this out in conversation with with many people, um, some of whom position themselves slightly differently. I quoted Dustin Abdali's review, and he said, oh, you know, you guys used to tangle about whether black identity is important or whether it's essentializing. So do we create race when we resort to these categories all the time because I'm inspired by another thing in that review and that we have talked about Can so I much. Can one yeah. thing because otherwise I, I forget to say that and I think we forget that and someone like Nancy Yao is someone who reminds us and pushes that. The first group in the Netherlands to use to self-designate themselves as black yeah. mm-hmm. were the people of Moluccan descent. Yeah. They were the first. The people from the Sur- from Suriname in the end, they had other terms for themselves. So they didn't use that term per se. But they were the first ones to use it. And that's why Nancy Yawa is, is, is often right when she says, when people are speaking about this, they are not looking at the history of the Netherlands. Because yeah. if they look at the history of the Netherlands, they will think anti-racism differently. And I think she's right. Yeah. No, I love that. And actually, it reminds me of work that's being done in New Zealand on the Black Panthers and the Brown Panthers and the Pacifica Panthers and these kinds of solidarity indifference, I have sometimes called it. It is so important to both pay attention to the specificities, but also to the larger structures that designate people as things. And you turn in the book, actually, to one form of resistance to that process, which I've also drawn great inspiration from and taught about a lot, which is music. There's so much music in the book. Why? Yeah, good one. Because next to literature, which is less in this book, in an older book, next to that, Caribbean people, West Indian people, I should say, made themselves through music. They were busy scripting themselves differently, producing alternative um, identifications. So whilst, let's say, the standard versions of Spanish and English and, uh, and French and so forth were, um, were in the official domains, in the domain of music, you had the Creoles. You had the French Creoles of Kassav, you had it with Mali and then with Dancehall and then with Soka. That was sung in the languages that people generally spoke. They were busy scripting themselves. And music to me is... Metonymic. If identity is metaphoric, that's what you are. Music is about releasing desire because desire is metonymic. Desire moves. Desire cannot be captured. That's why in the Caribbean they say, free up yourself, sube, and so forth. Because that means, no, I'm not going to be captured there. So there is messages, lyrics in the music, but it's also the musicality of it. And the interesting thing when you look at much of West Indian music, it's generally speaking contrapuntal. It's doing two different things. One is saying, damn, shit is hard. But the music is saying, things are okay. (laughs) We're jamming. It's pushing imaginations. David Rudder again. In the Caribbean, the Ganges meets the Nile. And then people have said, oh, yeah, Ganges will meet the Nile. And okay, it's because indeed people from India and people from Africa... So we're meeting each other. There's a conception of the world that's different. It's not saying, then you had this people come, then you had that people come, and let's see who was before. It's saying here, two rivers meet with the many rivers that you have in Trinidad. It's saying, it's saying, in Brazil, this thing is religious. It's Umbanda and Candomblé. In Trinidad, it's musical. 
Same dance step. You do it in your rituals. I do it on the carnival field. But it's reminding us that nothing was placed in one thing. It just moves continuously. It multiplies, it changes, it transposes, and so forth. That, to me, is what music allows. So I see Peter Tosh or Bunny Whaler as important as Michel Foucault and these others. And it's not only the lyrics, it's what it pushes in my imagination. The ability to want to see something else and say, no, you can call me what you want, but I am still doing something else. For me also, when I listen carefully to music, I was thinking about local, global, national, and both the specificity, but the logic. That is what you hear going on. So you can listen to music from, in my case, the 1920s in Paris. Musicians are there from not just the African continent and the Caribbean, but also North America and further. They're jamming together. Now, to jam, you have to listen carefully, but also when you then create the music, the polyrhythms, the, the many weaving and braided lines of music, then you hear both the specificity but also the glorious whole. And I often think that's actually not just a metaphor. It's also a series of processes Correct. that music helps us understand and actually makes philosophic claims through Correct. doing so. Yeah, because uh, when Franchi was speaking, I remembered, like, Suka has no sad songs. No. <laughs> like, there are no sad songs. They could be singing about something that's maybe hard, but it's not sung in a way that's supposed to be sad. It's sung in a way that's supposed to make you feel better or motivated to school like dance and when you dance that means nothing's holding you down or weighing you or worrying you so yeah finding these small little snippets in my own life as well yeah yeah i mean but also ritmo combinado doble ere for people from curacao when they sing tula we're still waiting because what you wanted is still not here the society is not what it needs to be it's not a decent society yet but people dance to that. So in dancing, they take on something. And in some ways of thinking, you have to be still so that you can learn something. So in my classroom, I just taught a course in the Black Atlantic, we start with salsa. So if I look at political blackness, I think it musically, as Rachel is saying. I think there's an ensemble of all kinds of things. There's a whole, but that whole is continuously changing, and everyone is playing their own instrument. And once in a while, your instrument might be more important. Once in a while, I might have to say, yes, <laughs> I'm against Islamophobia. So that's what we're fighting. And once in a while, it will have to be anti-black racism. If you can think it musically and look at how music is made, then you understand it. Yeah, and if you look at Calypso, which originates in Trinidad, and it was a form of political commentary, but it's something that everyone celebrates. And is also, maybe it's addressing topics like the working class, the masses would face, but they made it fun, they made it entertainment. And I feel like that's the true resilience and resistance yeah, yeah. of the Caribbean. I think David Rudder was getting at that when he said, Soka is not the blues. I think Benitez Rojo of Cuba was getting at that when he said the situations might be similar, and in the Caribbean and Cuba, they say, man, the situation is fucked, but what are we eating today? <laughs> That's a different conception than the situation is really fucked, yeah. And I warned you, Francio, I actually had a mm -hmm. rather harsh question, so I'm going to uh -huh. skip to that one now because it's a natural segue. You think with Stuart Hall, you think with Paul Gilroy, you think with C.L.R. James, the magnificent Trinidadian commenter on the Haitian Revolution and on cricket, actually, mm -hmm. <laughs> as a form of game that is both colonial and, and Laurent Dubois's words disrupts because you can't 
make Europeans win mm-hmm. <laughs> cricket. But you think with these incredible thinkers, and yet as I read, I see Gloria Wecker and I see Philomena Essed, but I also see many, many foundational women in your texts who are not thinkers. And I wonder about this, and i thinking slightly cynically of a Rastafarian music tradition that can be really masculinist. And I wondered if you could comment on that, on how you sort of position women's voices in your texts and think with the men, but dance with the women? Is that a fair comment? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good comment. Let me see if I can answer it this way in, let's say, three steps. The first step is what is taught? What is thinking? Thinking is solving, is actions to solve something when you come across a difficulty. So which means some modes of thinking... Uh, happen because you're trying to solve particular academic puzzles. Paul Gilroy trying to solve the puzzle of, so what do I do with this Marxism that is so parochial in Great Britain? (laughs) How do I try to push that to push something like the Black Atlantic? He's thinking in the book, Oma Bea, uh, Mevrouw Sleinhardt, they're thinking too. And it's like hard. She's meeting a situation in which she's saying, in this neighborhood, there are too many youngsters who are not going to the highest levels of high school. That's a problem. She's going to think, how do I solve that? She's not going to write it in a book, but she's going to create the possibilities that her kitchen will be a place where you are not only playing, you will do your homework here. She's going to go to the uh, spell town town and say, we're going to create spaces here. That's taught too. To me, the response I would give is to say, recognize that the theorizing that's taking place in this book is one in which Oma Beya, Mufrau Slanghart are equally important to Stuart Hall, and three of them are not more important than KRS-One, the musician. I admit that's not a lot in this book. That's in, the, in one of my first books, Avido Madansa, the, the Candomblé through Two Cariocas, in which I try to say I'm writing a social scientific novel because I realize people like Maurice Condé and Jamaica Kincaid, they theorize, they think through telling particular stories. That's also theorizing. Some in academia, like Sylvia Winter and Gloria Wecker and so forth, they are busy solving, doing actions, in a particular domain. Others are doing it in other domains. Some are doing it in the domain of music. That's why I call them vernacular intellectuals following um, uh, Grand Farad, which through popular culture, they are pushing other things. They're creating music. They're creating poetry. Sometimes you have vernacular intellectuals like C.L.R. James that are busy using popular culture to think again, to add more. That's why his Beyond the Boundary is such a wonderful book in which he does that. Theory happens in different places because it's about thought, And it's creating a certain distance between the habitual and a moment to act to change the habitual. That, to me, is how I read theory. So I understand the the conception, and if I think it in some versions of feminism, I would say yes. But, But if I think it broader, I would say one kind of theorizing is happening through the novels. That's why I'm using more novels than I'm using philosophical books, but theorizing to me happens all over because I I think Gramsci enough to think all human beings are intellectuals. 
all have the possibility of doing intellectual work, and they have to do intellectual work because the world is, is not one in which they can remain in, in the habitual and feel good. They have to constantly move things, and that's what I'm trying to do too. So I'm yeah. not... Yeah. No, I, I, I know. And yet I think there's still, you know, all humans are intellectuals, but some are more intellectual than others, you know, to, to misquote uh, Animal Farm by George Orwell. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. Theorizing happens in different ways. But I do think some of our university systems and structures of thinking privilege certain types of theorization. And that's all I'll sort of say in response. To <laughs> so when I first yeah. came to the Netherlands, I was also doing a project on using urban hip hop and talking about the experiences of Dutch Moroccan youth as well. And one of the things I learned in one of my conversations with one of my Dutch friends was that Dutch high school has these different levels. And basically, you be tested on to which level you move on to. And the first thing that popped into my head was that I feel like perhaps there is some kind of discrimination that could happen there because in your book you say that state neglect doesn't occur in the Netherlands in the way it does in the United States. But I still do think that maybe like there can be still these occurrences such as in the Dutch education system. I don't think it can happen. I think it happens far too often. I think there are enough school teachers that, that I've seen in, in field work or heard of in field work that give advices that systematically undervalue many of the children of people of Surinamese, Antillian, Moroccan, and so forth's descent. That's why I think the work that people like Annette Slanghart did of constantly telling the mothers, no, 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 why is your daughter being placed to go there? And sometimes these women, uh, let's say of Moroccan descent, then they were not as versed in Dutch. She would go with them to school and say, this is not okay. So I think that structurally something needs to happen because you can't only have these uh, intellectuals doing that work. So I think that's, that's completely right. I'm happy that more people are pushing it. But even when many of these youngsters go to the MBO, as it's called, to get an associate degree, as you said, there's a lot of things that they're doing. In Rotterdam, there's a project called Gedeeld Verleide Gezamenlijk Toekomst. And it means shared past, and we're trying to push for a common future. And that program is organized by youngsters on this associate level. They bring in all kinds of scholars. These young students read the books. They're probably books that people read at universities, but they're reading them or reading the articles. And they are devising questions and they're asking these questions. So even though they have been placed on that level, when you look at what they're reading, they're reading on the level that they're placed, associate. But the first place I came across Afro-pessimism, the theories of Frank Wilderson, was amongst youngsters on that associate level. They were beginning to read that. So therefore, I think we do have to ask ourselves, what is taking place there? And we know that from the Caribbean, that people who did not go to the university read Das Kapital, and they read Marcus Garvey Speaks, and so forth. So structurally, we do have to take care of that, because discrimination happens, you have to take care of that. But do not presuppose that people who have a different degree don't know. They know too. (laughs) And sometimes they know before we know. Makeda, this is a conversation about a book, about a life, about many lives. But if you had one takeaway sentence for a a prospective reader from your African and Caribbean heritage network, what's your takeaway or recommendation for the book? Firstly, to go into it with an open mind and be prepared to have some of your opinions changed or maybe nudged in a different direction. 
that you were thinking. Francio, what would you want people to take from your book? I like the idea of nudge. I really like it. It's simply a supplement to much of the work that is already being done in the Netherlands and other parts of Europe and the Caribbean and wider in relation to trying to undo racism. That's all it is. It's a supplement. And this podcast is entitled Unsettling Knowledge. And it aims, in fact, to look at the traces of empire in Europe, to think openly, to have good conversations. And I thank you both for serving those goals today. I did pick out one final quote from the book, and I think it is both an inspiration and a caution in those sweet and sour and structural yet resistant and convivial ways, Francio. And I quote, For C.L.R. James, the dream of a just, planet-wide politics and ethics of interhuman recognition is only possible when the hidden faces of all those who have contributed ideationally and materially to the wealth and power of Western civilization, so also those of Francio's brown-skinned great-grandparents, this is only possible when they are fully acknowledged. Thank you for bringing us to acknowledgement and thank you for both of your time today. To explore Francio's book for yourselves, you can order direct from the University of Mississippi Press, from your online bookseller, or best of all, check if your local bookstore has it. Black Man in the Netherlands. As we come to the end of the year, we have two more episodes in store for you. But in the meantime, do look back at our previous episodes. There's one on racism in sport, which is quite timely during the World Cup, to our most recent episode, produced and hosted by Marlene Yalanki on Utrecht University's inclusion program designed to transition refugees into Utrecht's educational system. Marlene Yalanki speaks with those students about their experiences settling into the Netherlands and participating in the inclusion program. As always, we invite you to respond to our episodes with any comments via our Unsettling Knowledge podcast page on Facebook and follow us via the Decolonization Group website and Twitter feed. I wish you and yours all the best, but for now, it's goodbye from me, your host, Rachel Gillette, with thanks to Francio Guadalupe and Makeda Ferguson for joining me, to Melina Yelanki for being a wonderful co-producer, and to Stefan Benmans for the audio editing for this episode. Take care and listen in again soon. <laughs>